I'll never forget that feeling of, of hearing that diagnosis, even not even before they even diagnosed me before they, when they saw the CT scan, I saw it in the guy's eyes when they took me back to get a CT scan, I saw that they saw a tumor. I knew it was there. And so I've never been that person before that day. It's I changed, I changed forever. And I'm always anxious. It's really, really challenging to ever feel safe uh, and secure in in my day-to-day life. That was Becca Allen Tapp talking about her experience as a cancer patient and the anxiety she continues to experience until this very day because the fear that the cancer may come back never goes away. Thankfully, Becca was already working in the cannabis industry when she got a diagnosis and really is a, a patient expert when it comes to treating her own anxiety and the other complex symptoms that that go along with the side effects of her cancer. Becca is now based in the UK and has brought her years of experience over the pond um, to Europe, where she, in a very short time, um, I think with her positive attitude has become a dearly loved member of our UK cannabis community where she is an amazing patient advocate. For anybody interested in psychedelics we do go on to talk about psilocybin. Becca has her own experiences of um, how healing psilocybin can be Um, and so uh, yeah lots to listen to and I hope you enjoy. And please as ever don't forget to like, rate, subscribe and share this podcast. You're listening to Cannabis Voices. People's stories in their own words about the healing power of the cannabis plant. Hi Becca, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Mary? I'm a little bit hot and sweaty. <laughs> the drought continues in the UK and across, uh, well, most of Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, surprising weather. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, because you. how long have you been living in, in the UK, Becca? A little over six months now. I think we just hit the six-month mark last okay. week. Well, congratulations. Yeah. yeah, I'm settling in. I can, I can, I'm almost allowed to drive here once, uh, once we go ahead and get a car. So I'm, I'm one step closer to being fully assimilated. Okay. Well, maybe this is a good point just to kind of a little explanation about why you're, you know, you're kind of in the cannabis industry. You have um, kind of one foot in this side of the UK bit of the pond and and another foot well and truly in the other side as well so so just tell us a little bit about yourself and your involvement in in the cannabis industry <laughs> that's like how much time do you got yeah <laughs> um, so i've been working in the cannabis industry since 2000 late 2015 early 2016 and that was right after oregon um announced that they were going to go recreational along with several other states. Um, so I started I started working, uh, doing various jobs in marketing and, uh, and, and just kind of evolved over time. And uh, I ended up working in uh, equipment and processing. So more of the production side, which I thought was really, really fun because I got to help design uh, facilities that would do all the extraction and processing. 
And then shortly after I started taking on the more of an equipment role, I was diagnosed with cancer, um, which we had an idea was something was going on. Uh, we didn't know it was cancer, but I ended up having my left lung removed. And uh, I, I had the opportunity then to apply what I had learned from working in cannabis to myself and used it to not only not take opioids, uh, but to deal with the, the stress of having such a heavy diagnosis. And um, it's taught me so much and taken me so many places that uh, last year around this time, I reached out to some colleagues here in the UK and said, hey, I think there's a lot of great things going on in Europe. I think that there's a lot of opportunity, especially in the cannabis space. Um, I'd like to come over and, and work with you and, and help develop a channel for that. And uh, now I work for one of the leading chemical reactor companies in the world. It's a global company and uh, we are getting ready to get into the cannabis space. Interesting. So it feels like you kind of wear many hats, really. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm trying to narrow my focus on on just uh, on just focusing on on cannabis. Uh, back in the US, I also did a lot with the the psilocybin movement, but here I've just solely focused on on cannabis and and my efforts e are either um, talking about patient access and helping people like me get access to to cannabis and a safe route for them. Or it's uh, it's working with uh, talking about production equipment and how to set up a lab and and looking also at, at what domestic production will look like in Europe and and where we need to 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 build a foundation. And it's interesting because you know despite being in the kind of production side of things, you I guess inevitably have your patient head on as well at always, which is a kind of a big. Um, ongoing complaint in this evolving um, European cannabis, I'm sure it's the same throughout the world, that often the patient's needs and experiences somehow kind of get ignored. So you, you are, we're lucky to have you as a patient and, and doing the work that you're doing professionally as well. I appreciate that. And it is an interesting experience here coming from the US because I did have the luxury of living in a recreational market. So as a patient that was a well-informed patient, I was able to kind of to go and serve myself based on what I knew I, I, I needed. And there's so much more educational resources there um, than I feel like there are here. So the challenge I find is that I have to much more identify as a patient than I would have back home. Back home, it was when I was a patient, it was more focused around being having had cancer. You know, like I was still trying to wrap my head around all that. But now not only am I here, like, a cancer patient, but I'm a cannabis using cancer patient. So it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's very different for me um, in, in terms of experience. Well, let's, let's take it back to, um, to your cancer, um, mm -hmm. and to hear more about your journey. Um, what type of cancer was it? It's a mouthful. I had neuroendocrine cancer. Um, it's a type of for me, it was, it can either be genetic or they think it could be hormonal. It's one of those rare cancers. They're not entirely sure what, why it, why it's here, or why it happens to people. It just does. Um, and it doesn't behave like normal cancers. It grows very slow uh, or it can go very fast and it can be in any part of the body. So brain, breast, bone, liver, 
anywhere, right? So Steve Jobs, he was a pretty famous neuroendocrine pans- uh, cancer patient. He had it in the pancreas. Oh, I didn't realize. I knew it was pancreatic, but I didn't know it was a you're yeah, okay. Yeah, right. it was neuroendocrine. So, but they just don't behave like traditional cancers. So oftentimes they don't respond to traditional treatment methods like radiation or chemo. Most often it's either watch and wait, or you, you do injections to try to suppress tumor growth or in my case, the tumor was too large, um, so they had no other choice but to operate. So by the time they found it, um, it was about a golf ball size. It was four, 4.6 centimeters, and it was actually climbing up my bronchi into my other lung. So they had no choice but to remove my entire left lung, which is called oh. a pneumonectomy. Blimey. Okay. And how yeah. do you manage day to day with with uh, with one lung I don't get pressed to go run anymore which is nice I don't feel that pressure it's a great get out of jail free card for for cardio activity yeah. <laughs> so um other than you know going upstairs sometimes I have a hard time going upstairs <clears throat> I find that uh when I drink I don't process alcohol as well uh, anymore so you know, uh, it's, it's things like that. You don't, you don't really like it's, mm-hmm. it's subtle things. Um, you know, I had to, honestly, it actually, because the infection that I had for so long before, when they actually found the tumor, um, I had, I had had it growing for about 10 to 15 years before they found it. And I had known that there was something wrong because my hormones were all out of whack. As soon as I hit puberty, all through, all through school and to being a young, uh, young woman, but I t- could not get my doctors to listen to me for the life of me that something was wrong because I would just say it's hormones. They would try throwing birth control pills and things like that at me. Um, but I would, I was like, it's either my thyroid or something's wrong because I'm having just specific, to almost like menopause or, or perimenopause like symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so by the time they actually found the tumor, I was on the border of having sepsis. So Whoa. it took a long time to clear out the infection. I had had residual pneumonia stuck behind the tumor. So I had so much infection in my body. So even though I had cancer growing in me for so long, which was doing things like uh, it would uh, mess with my adrenals and, uh, and cause my cortisol levels to be elevated, but then the infection itself actually led to secondary conditions. So I developed a lot of like autoimmune-like conditions, but they can't figure out exactly what's wrong. It's not fibromyalgia, it's not lupus, it's not uh, rheumatoid arthritis, it's something that they, it mimics all of them, but we can't figure out exactly what's going on. And that's still ongoing. Oh yeah, I have episodes, like right after Europa, when I was hospitalized, I was having an episode, I couldn't get out of bed for almost a week, my heart rate was going between resting at 123, upwards of 170s to 200, and there's nothing they can't they don't know what's wrong with me. You know, like it's, it's not something that is a, it's a known medical condition. So it's just a, a side effect of the type of cancer I had. And, and many people in my cancer community face the same thing. It's yeah. hormonal cancers have a lot of side effects that just aren't really um, handled. And so you still have the cancer is still present, um, but managed, is that right? Mm. So they cut all the cancer out to what they know. They have to, I have to be monitored um, by CT scan. And then every couple of years, which is this year, I'll have um, a gallium scan, which I found out the gallium scan is the equivalent. The radiation equivalent is 
of seven years of background radiation, which is what we're experiencing every day. So I'm getting a dose of seven nice. years all at once. Yeah. So, uh, so I radiation to, party. Woo-hoo. Yeah, exactly. So I get this scan. Um, it's a gallium 68 scan. It's a type of PET scan and it'll, uh, they inject you with this dye. You wait for an hour and then you, you get a head to toe scan and they see if there's any teeny timer, tiny tumor markers mm-hmm. anywhere in your body, uh, to, to know if it's growing. And then, we respond based on, on that. So I'll probably have those for the next, uh, I'll probably have scans for the next 10 to 15 years, but this cancer can return any time in my life for the rest of my life and anywhere in my body. And how does that affect your mental health? Uh, it's definitely why well, I'm a big advocate for cannabis. <laughs> right. uh, it's, I mean, I found, we found out only, 14 months after I had my son and I'll never forget that feeling of, of hearing that diagnosis, even not even before they even diagnosed me before they, when they saw the CT scan, I saw it in the guy's eyes when they took me back to get a CT scan, I saw that they saw a tumor. I knew it was there. And so I've never been that person before that day. It's I changed, I changed Mm -hmm. forever and I'm always anxious. It's really, really challenging to ever feel safe uh and secure in in my day-to-day life and and that's a that's a big challenge but cannabis has helped to give that back to me because if i'm feeling anxious i can go outside and use my packs and take a hit or two and and it takes some of the pressure off of me because i feel like there's a catch-22 i mean i can be not anxious or if i'm anxious about the cancer returning i feel like okay well what's this cortisol from all this stress doing to my body and it's just it's just like the cycle it's it's a mm. it's a very very vulnerable cycle that i go through and and um and i i you know i wonder what the relationship is to that to all these to the autoimmune like symptoms that i feel like i wonder how much stress plays a part on that just from what my brain has fabricated based on on my experiences I think sometimes as well, we can also, I think sometimes ignorance can be bliss because then mm-hmm. I think if we know about the kind of, I, I get mm-hmm. myself into a bit of a, a spin sometimes. I'm a bit of a kind of chronic anxiety person and yeah. um, and just thinking, oh my God, what will have like, you know, so much cortisol have done to my body over the years. And, it's like, and then that's another thing to be anxious about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, yeah. So when you were in the US um, and you, you know, it was adult use, it was recreational access. How, what, what did you find worked for you? Because you would have had access to so many different strains and different, you know, edibles and all sorts of things that we don't have access necessarily here through the legal market. So how did you medicate yourself uh, while, whilst living in the US? To be honest, uh, I've, always, I make, I've always made my own. Uh, I think the best, access, the best option that I had uh, there would be all of the dispensaries and all the flour and the fact that I worked in the industry. So I got to go visit these farms and talk to these people and build a relationship with them. So that I think was something that was really unique for, for me and, and that you got to have brand loyalty. You know, there was a couple gardens there or cultivators uh, that I worked with East Fork cultivars out of uh, Southern Oregon and Meraki gardens in, um, in, in in Portland where I'm from and these people they had really stringent sustainability practices they cared about their community and so 
I, I got to purchase this amazing flower and then I would make things like oils and butters from it and make my own medicine or I'd make my own tinctures. Like I've always been a bit of a kitchen witch. So I like to do my own herbal tinctures with that. And that's honestly like the same thing that I do here. I just source great quality flower and then I make my own medicine with it. And a big kind of I don't know if you call it a concern or, or or something I've sort of you know heard back from from different reports in the US is what happens um, to the medical market once um, adult use is passed as well. Um, is it you know because then there's what what's the incentive to actually go and see a doctor? I know you can't get a prescription in the US; you get your letter of recommendation, but then you know you go to your dispensary, dependent on what how much knowledge the bud tender has. You know, if you've got a serious health condition and you're just, you know, some 20, 20 year old giving you giving you suggestions. I mean, is it sort of as as scary as it sounds, you know, kind of a little old ladies going to dispensaries and, and actually no one overseeing um, actually whether there's drug interactions and all that kind of stuff. Can can the two uh, ecosystems exist side by side? Definitely the, the the drug interaction question I don't think comes up enough. That's something that I would definitely say. And but I, I think that there because it is a legal market, you see so many patients like, you know, um, like the elderly population feeling more confident talking to their doctors about it because there's not the fear of recourse from it. So I think that it's opened up the doorway for people to be able to have constructive conversations with their healthcare providers and say, Hey, there's a dispensary down the street from me. Like I really want to try some topicals for my arthritis. You know, what do you think? And then, and then they can do that with their doctor's knowledge. And I think it's much more accepted uh, in, in states with recreational programs for people to, to, you know, do DIY healthcare. And I think it takes some of the pressure off the medical system as well. Like if they're not someone that has to have a specific dose or, or, or is need something medicine for like, say they have like epilepsy or something serious like that, that has to be, that has to have a certain type of dose, a certain administration method. I think that the having legalization allows for doctors to focus on those people who need specific remedies Whereas people like me that I have anxiety, I know kind of what to do for it. Or if I have, or someone with, you know, topical uh, bodily pains, muscles, aches, can, we can treat ourselves uh, safely, you know, with obviously with our healthcare providers acknowledgement. But mm-hmm. um, so I think it's actually opened more and more pathways for access. Mm. I mean, I guess it's less paternalistic, isn't it? You are, the invitation is if you want it, that you source your own medicine and you, you're essentially treating yourself, right? Exactly. And I think there's just, I mean, there's already so much responsibility that I think patients need to take for their conditions is I research regardless, even if it's a prescription that they provide me, I research because there I've found drug interactions that they've overlooked with someone like myself. I have one lung and there's certain beta blockers I can't take. And that's things that it's taken multiple pulmonologists for someone to even highlight as, as a potential concern. So regardless if what type of medicine we're taking, I think that is our responsibility as well to check if there's any drug interactions. We can't just be completely reliant on someone not to make a human error and, and prescribe us something without seeing uh, any potential interactions. So um, yeah, I think that there's that level as well. 
Yeah, I think that's an ideal world. I mean, um, I'm wondering in certain marginalised communities how how you know realistic that is, or certain kind of you know age groups of populations. Um, I think definitely. I think you know, I, 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 my job is researching. You know, that's what I've done for probably most of my um, adult life. So I, I can do that. You know, mm-hmm. you can do that, but not everybody can actually, um, um, or don't have those skills that they've developed. So, uh, and my, you know, I guess I have a concern that those are the, you know, they are the ones who um, perhaps need that 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 oversight and and that extra care. But of course. Um, mm. And I think that's where kind of making sure you're consulting with others before just trying something on your own, you know, like consulting with with your community, consult with your doctor, always consult with your doctor first, but then speak to speak to others that might be more knowledgeable than you. Like that's where people like, you know, plea come in, plea come in to help is that we can raise those questions. Have you considered this? Have you talked to your doctor about this? You know, um, considerations to take when when looking at medical cannabis as an option. Mm. So um, mentioning please, so that we're sort of now with your UK hat on. Um, <laughs> so um, so plea is, uh, well, perhaps you can explain who plea are and, and, and what they do. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's patient-led uh, engagement for access, I believe is what it stands for. I Correct. always used to, I always well used to mess that up. So <laughs> it's good. Otherwise, I'd have to, um, I, I'd lose a point or uh house yeah exactly honorably um so i first found them and that's where i first met you because of a webinar that was put on and i had first come to the uk and was really looking for for ways to get involved and plea had put on a webinar and it was even more amazing that it was a women-focused webinar around cannabis and had some great people like you and Viola on it and a number of other uh, uh, fantastic women in this space. And so I did a little bit more research after engaging with everyone on that on that panel a little bit and realized that uh, Plea was doing some pretty phenomenal work by allowing space for patients and cannabis naive cannabis curious to come together and feel a sense of community and it it doesn't matter if you how you're sourcing it as long as your intention is medicinal use you are getting the support Um, there's multiple resources on there there's shared patient stories Um, right now they're doing a survey to to get a better idea of of the scope of cannabis use in the uk and so there's just so much going back into the community it's a really wonderful organization I'm, i'm proud to be a part of it and so your what's what is your your role now becca with um with plea yeah, I'm on their advisory board, so I assist with any questions related to uh, to medical cannabis use. Yeah, I guess that's because I I remember that that um, the the webinar um, and and I, I don't know how long you've been in the UK at that point, but it was very striking Ooh, how like um, a week. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, but you know that that you know that you were um, uh, very yeah very kind of a an open um dynamic uh <laughs> person who's not scared to reach out and network you know because i think that's that can be 
we're not we're not naturally like that as British people, even you know in this space. Um, yeah, so it was really refreshing. I remember it very clearly in the kind of comment section. So I think I might have been, you know, I was moderating and kind of keeping an eye out. Who is this Becca woman? <laughs> Yeah, I definitely was just super excited to see the conversation. And I I came over here to be a part of it, to add my voice to all of yours, you know, like uh, that's ultimately there's strength in numbers. And like I, you and I had talked about recently, I think we're kind of at a, at a place where a lot of us are, are facing burnout because there's just so, there's so much more to go. So it's like a baton race, you know, my goal is to come over here and, and have the baton pass to me. I'd, I'd make some noise in my own fashion and, and keep going. And we would just be there and support each other. Hurrah for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm, I'm interested to know uh, so far and, you know, the months that you've been here and the engagement that you've had in different aspects of the industry, what's your impression of what's happening here in the UK? Let's start with the UK and then we can broaden it out to Europe. The UK is, quickly becoming one of my favorite cannabis markets because I feel like it is one of the underdogs in Europe. I don't think that people realize all that's going on here and the different groups and and what we're doing. Um, I think that there's so much opportunity too. you know, like we have a long history of, of, of cannabis here with obviously, you know, like being one of the largest uh, exporters of medical cannabis in the world. And we also have some great things happening on the research and development side. So I think that the political climate is shifting and, and that we will see some change. I don't know if it's necessarily the change that we're all hoping for. I see NHS still um, being slow to make any developments, but uh, people like, you know, Matt and Hannah Deacon and the work they're doing uh, is just, it's phenomenal to watch. And, and I can't wait to, to have more opportunities to work alongside everyone and, and continue to um, bang our drums and, and continue down the pathway of uh, more access, safer access for, for patients. And then, and then get that in line before we really explore uh, legalization. Mm. What's your impression of the, of our, how our kind of private clinics system works? <laughs> uh, it's I'm excited that it's it's there. It's an option. <laughs> Starting on a positive. <laughs> Starting on a positive. I think that it has uh, a lot of opportunity for for growth. I I think my biggest concern with the process is, and I talked about this at Europa with uh, with Jasmine of Ohana. We had we were on the stage. Um, at the same time, I didn't get to see Dr. Danny because we were at like conflicting stages talking both about women's health, right? So it's it a great day for women's health and cannabis. But the the needing two consecutive prescription tried treatments for one condition, I think that that's that's one area that I found that's a big uh, big obstacle for people to to really um, check that box because. I've run into a lot of patients in my own cancer community that have given me pages and pages and pages of birth prescriptions, but they're all for different things. Like mm. they're all for different things. Even for myself, I had a huge struggle getting a prescription because I have a complicated diagnosis. And also I have a bunch of different tried treatments and they are all for one thing. And mm. that's because like I explained earlier on in this conversation, like I've had a rare cancer, which resulted in, in autoimmune like symptoms, which 
have various methods for treatment. So I think that by making it even a little bit more loose where it's not two tried treatments for one condition, maybe opening it up and, and looking and being able to hit a couple different markers, you know, like a couple different options. Because I think that a lot of times when people actually start looking at medical cannabis, it's when you see that they've tried a bunch of different other other types of therapies and treatments and nothing's worked. Um, but it's also a lot of people who have those conditions like fibromyalgia that might not even know that's what they have because fibromyalgia has a presents in a lot of different ways. Mm. So I think that that's one, one barrier that would be easily, um, easily revisited and it would open up access. Yeah. Cause I think this has, that this would go, this is not the, the clinics um, dictating that, although I guess some of kind course of stick to it more to the letter than, than others. Um, yeah. I guess, this goes back to whoever the regulators were who kind of came up with that rule in the first place. And I, I, I don't know, it's interesting, but I wonder, that's the thing with the UK. Uh, I wonder how much political will there is to do anything really. It, it almost feels like they kind of like, you know, rescheduled, made it possible for, for prescriptions to happen. And then they've kind of washed their hands of it really. Um, and like, well, you, you guys get on with it. I mean, it's interesting um in spain i I used to live in spain until three years ago and um and the route that they're taking which is still you know the kind of their medical healthcare regulatory agency or whatever the equivalent is in in spain or at the kind of working out how the system is going to work but it is going to be within their national health service it's not going to be actually um, private doctors won't be able to prescribe it so Mm. um so already to me that shows that there is you know, more of a political will to make that work. Whereas if it ends up just being purely private, it's, you know, apart from all the clinics (laughs) having to have the kind of CQC um, sort of standards, etc. It's um, it's not costing the government anything, actually, at the moment. In fact, they're they're making money, particularly with, you know, all these Mm -hmm. children who are, are no longer spending you know several weeks a year in 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 hospital because mm-hmm. they you know their their seizures are now controlled um mm-hmm. so actually it's it's actually saving uh rnhs lots of money but they're not actually having to spend anything in the process which sounds perfect for them great <laughs> <laughs> right. they're functioning like a company right right yeah that's a scary a scary prospect and how about the rest of europe because you know you you're you're an excellent networker becca and and uh and in the short time you're here, you know, I, I kind of I know you've been at different conferences and Cannabis Europa, which you've sort of referenced while in the UK has a, a kind of European vision. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on the rest of Europe? I'm still honestly trying to figure it out. Um, I have been just working on understanding the drug policies, which evolve every single day, like we just saw with Switzerland last week. Theirs have changed. Um so it's it's such a moving target for me, having come from um, understanding what is the patchwork of 19 states and, and their regulation, and now moving over here and trying to understand because it varies so much. Uh, I think that I'm really interested in seeing what Germany is going to do, just like everyone else is. I'm really interested to see how they 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 develop their drug policy. Um, Switzerland, I also think, is pretty interesting because they're doing... You know, they're working on a recreational uh, pilot program right now. And same with Portugal. I mean, Portugal has some very interesting developments uh, there as well. So I think that 2023 and 2024 is going to be 
uh, very busy in um, in in the cannabis space as far as uh, policy reform. Hmm. Um, I'm also curious. I mean, you know, I know you said you're concentrating on um, on the cannabis side of things, but you've also been involved in Oregon with um, psilocybin and um, mm-hmm. campaigning for that. So um, I don't know if you feel comfortable just touching on that as well, your experiences and and um, any any thoughts on how things are, are going in terms of getting a psilocybin based drug to market. Yeah, I mean, you know I'm an open book, obviously. I'm always happy to discuss these things. Uh, I can hands down say psilocybin changed my life, changed my life dramatically. And I can't wait for other cancer patients and people who suffer treatment-resistant depression and um, others that have just really, really poor quality of life or, or, or you know, thoughts of harm can experience it because it is life-changing uh, for many, many people, myself included. So that's something I'm incredibly excited about. And probably one of my only regrets about um, about leaving Oregon when I did was that in 2020, they were the first state to legalize psilocybin for therapeutic use. And it would take two years to really develop the policies around that and roll out the plan. And now that's starting to come to fruition. And uh, some of my favorite people, like that Southern Oregon cultivator I mentioned earlier, East Fork Cultivars, they developed uh, the family who, who created that farm has now gone on to develop a, a, like a, a treatment center using oh, wow. psilocybin therapies. And so I watched this, this, this you know, family evolve and, and I really want to be there to support everyone. Uh, mm. But I know my work is over here right now uh, and it's coming this way. I mean, there's a petition out right now to uh to revisit uh psilocybin therapy use in the uk for uh you know people who benefit so like terminally ill cancer patients or people with treatment resistant depression so i'm hoping that gets some traction and then it can be a bigger conversation here but to even see that be a petition is huge like that conversation's Mm -hmm. already started so that's exciting and i think actually um I think cannabis, you know, cannabis and psilocybin working, not, you know, not taking them at this necessarily at the same time. But yeah. I, I do think, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's obvious in the case if you're going, you know, going through um, a cancer diagnosis, be it, be it terminal or not, actually, you know, having mm-hmm. those insights and um, often mystical experiences that come from, from, be it psilocybin or, or LSD or, you know, or ayahuasca, or whatever, you know, I think that that just helps to kind of reframe, doesn't it? And, and, and just, um, yeah, kind of uh, shake one out of uh, oneself out of an old paradigm and into a new one where actually, you know, you can live with a diagnosis in a different way or, you know, shake up those, those rigid um, uh, sort of, prison-like thought patterns that have developed mm-hmm. over the years for um and so i think actually you know often i think i think they've studied this particularly with chronic pain you know that there there are you know high instances of people who've gone through trauma or sexual abuses mm-hmm. as children etc so you know I, I think my my sense and i think you can have um insights with cannabis of course but if you can be sort of you know helping with the symptoms managing the symptoms with cannabis and actually if you can get to that the nub or the root actually of of the suffering which is potentially mm-hmm. manifesting in the body with psychedelics in some way then I, th- I think that 
is maybe a, a good combination and possibly one you have you know you can vouch for personally yeah i mean what i really liked about psilocybin was that um it did just that it 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 opened up a chasm and showed you a deeper rooted issue and i knew that every time i used it that there would be work to be done afterwards you know about 24 to 48 hours later i'd have some epiphany that was and i'd it would it'd be like having like a like a crime scene investigation on the wall where i'd have like the red the red string out drawing to like a picture it would it would illuminate something for me that i hadn't realized i had been holding on to uh and and the effects afterwards that i would feel lasted uh quite longer than than with cannabis use that's kind of i do they're different they have different roles in my life but i do like that with with psilocybin i was able to really for for days afterwards i would not have to to even use cannabis i would you know i would really need anything i would just feel okay like the anxiety would be at bay and i would just feel content um and i like that i like that experience that it's not something that needs regular maintenance it can be something that has long lasting effects mm. and that is where the the work comes afterwards isn't it i mean it's you know it's i think um in the narrative around um psychedelics it, it's often kind of painted as a silver bullet and and you get five years of therapy in one night and and that's it but actually if you don't do the crime scene afterwards and and you know kind of process and integrate etc then you might have that little kind of small window of of the afterglow um, but it's very easy. I can talk from personal experience of it's very easy just to fall back into those, you know, those old habits that are there supporting the day to day suffering and um, keeping you keeping you stuck where you are. But it's interesting how you say that actually, you know, those days after um, taking psilocybin, you weren't having to medicate with with, with cannabis. Yeah, I did a whole ritual around it. Every time I would use psilocybin, I would actively journal, I would meditate, I'd I'd work through it. It was for me, I specifically took it as like a as like a as a therapy, but I also did it at at a level that wasn't um it was in between a it was heavier than a micro, but it wasn't a dose that they would give you as a therapeutic dose. Like mm. I I did enough that I was conscious and alert you know um and what was going on and i didn't feel like i didn't have like an out-of-body experience i I would like to do it therapeutically one day Mm -hmm. um but that's just something that i haven't had the opportunity to do so i I went in with set and setting i created a space i created a mindset i i used it as a tool to to help me get my life back after everything that's happened to me so how, how are you feeling at the moment how is how is life uh, I'm good. I'm. I mean, I. To be honest, I'm in that scan place right now, um, mm-hmm. where I'm over here, uh, and now I have a new doctor. It's my third oncologist that I've had since I've been diagnosed, and um, I'm waiting for my my gallium scan. So I'm experiencing a lot of what uh, cancer pa- patients refer to as scanxiety. Mm. It's a cute little play on words. It's a special form of anxiety you get before and after your scans, all the way leading up to to get that what we call NED or no evidence of disease uh, until we hear those three lovely letters. Um, there's just episodes of uncontrollable anxiety. So 
today I actually received my letter from NHS, the one I had just was talking about that told me about the, the radiation exposure. Uh, so that elicited a whole bunch of other, you know, other feelings around that. So I don't ever get that far from remembering uh, my mortality. So I think that uh, coming over here and in shaking my life up in such a way has definitely made it so that there's a lot more surfaced uh, experiences and traumas and feelings that I'm working through alongside mm-hmm. of everything that I'm doing in my professional and, and volunteer volunteer life. So uh, it's it's a really, really profound experience for me to be here going through all of it and just uh, learning to, uh, as the as the military would say, embrace the suck of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of everything going on. But at the same time, I'm having such a, an amazing experience that I know I'll look back on and, and, and really cherish just uh, right now. It's, 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 it's in that six month mark where, uh, you know, I, I'm like, wait, am I, am I going to stay here? Do I go home? Is this, mm, it's mm-hmm. all kind of, everything's kind of settling in at once. So. Yeah. And how important when you've had a diagnosis like that, it is, uh, having meaning in your life. Um, was, were you that kind of person before where, you know, the, it sounds like you No, okay. You're, sh- you're shaking your head. Okay. <laughs> No, because before I was just, you know, immortal. I was immortal, you know, like I knew I knew there was something wrong, but I hadn't found it yet. So I was I wasn't in that space where I thought that, you know, I was diagnosed at 30. So still pretty young and uh, immediately it aged me, aged me tremendously. It slowed me down. Um, So um, my whole outlook and everything has changed. And there's lots of people who are like, you know, learned to be, you know, triathlon uh, participants after their cancer diagnosis, I've channeled mine into um, tackling all of my fears, doing things that scared me. Uh, that's that's just what I've done, you know. Also, making it sure that the lifestyle I'm living allows me to not sacrifice family time. You know, like I want to live a very family focused life while still exploring my passions. Um, and so far, I've found a combination that works. And so what what are you hoping then for this this time in Europe? I mean, have you got a um a sort of five year plan or or just is it open ended? I guess does it depend on visas or how 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 what's your kind of your vision, Becca? Yeah, so I really want to see uh the company I work for, AGI, I wanna see us really become leaders in the equipment space. I want to I wanna see more domestic production happen. You know, that's really a goal for mine while we're here. So I do have a three-year visa, which can be extended afterwards. I have a permanent position within AGI. Uh, AGI. So we do we do consider uh, going home in a couple years just because uh, family is there and, and that's something that's important to us. But at the same time, we're trying to just be open to what experiences come our way because you know, a year ago, if you had told me we'd be living here, I wouldn't believe you. So uh, it's just taking it as it comes. But my five-year plan is really, I want to get more into the political side of things. So I'm hoping to um, use my time and find some opportunities to volunteer uh, more in the lobbying space while we wait to see, uh, you know, legalization or at least uh, domestic production loosen up. And then that's something I really want to be working on is helping develop spaces for producing cannabis medicines. 
Well, I feel very lucky that we've got you over here for however long it is. Um, <laughs> I already feel like you've been and are continue to be a breath of fresh air, Becca. So, um, so it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. I feel the same. I'm so excited to have such an amazing community and uh, such strong women within it too. Uh, that's that's an added bonus for me is to to have some of the lovely ladies that I'm connected to, in addition to all the really really great men in our community and everyone else. Um, so I'm I'm happy to see what we can do. You know, let's just keep going and and keep holding each other up and and knowing that it's going to be a long road ahead of us, but we're not walking it alone. Thank you for listening to Cannabis Voices. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review and share with your family and friends.